Imagine the world you desire for your family, friends, neighbors, and even enemies. Do we desire for them a world where good and evil are fashioned and formed by the personalities and trends of our age? Do we desire a world where our courage is outsourced to fiends who prefer approval by the God-haters over doing the good work of freeing the lost with the liberating true gospel of Christ Jesus? We are not graced with an excess of leaders who will be like Nehemiah, who stand firm on the wall with a trowel and a sword. Instead, we are afflicted with too many leaders who will gladly descend from the wall, ceasing to do the good work, going down to converse with the darkness as if it is an alternative light which needs compromise. A world of such dissension is not a world with truth, goodness, or anything noble or beautiful. For such is a world where one can neither love their enemy nor their neighbor. For here none can even tell which is which. This is not a mere question of something so ordinary as the American dream, but the fundamental question of whether we desire to live in a world where good is truly understood to be good, where God is God. The only antidote to such a calamitous world is the gospel of Christ Jesus. And revival through the covenant of Christ begins between each of our hearts and God. Restoration is only possible through this covenant. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. This is Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. And today we're going to be continuing our study of the memoir of Nehemiah. And we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 10. Though it'll be towards the end of our message today when we actually read that chapter. But I want us to begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we are assembled together, Lord, over the internet, over the airwaves, wherever we may be, Lord, I pray that you come, convict us, send your Holy Spirit to sanctify us, cleanse us of our sins, and open up our eyes that we can see this world in a way that you desire. Let us be motivated by your will and not by service to the various causes of our day and age, but let us look towards you. For, Lord, it is only through your covenant that we can truly find liberty and restoration. Lord, there are so many in our world who are simultaneously desiring restoration but also hating the holy truths which you have set before us. Let us be defenders of light and truth in this world. Bless each and every one who hears this message. Give us health and give us joy. We ask all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Today, our sermon is titled, Defenders of Light and Truth. And I want to begin by talking a little bit about idolatry. Anything that is set up as moral authority outside of God is an idol. And this is true whether it's something that we like a lot or something which is just imposed on us by the world, but we're so exhausted by its imposition that we surrender to it. Without a healthy fear of God and His eternal sovereignty, we will find that a society cannot maintain an appreciation for truth. And this is something which is going on quite predominantly here in America. Moreover, there cannot even be an appreciation for the common good in a society of idolatry. For such a nation will not even be able to agree on what is true or good. In America right now, we are discovering that we have lived in a luxurious delusion where we believed that people were naturally good and reasonable, that all would pursue truth and liberty given the opportunity. However, this is not so. For all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve are born with the curse of sin in their hearts. Whether we fall for the idols of our own making or we bow in exhaustion before the idols forced on us by the world, idolatry always leads to chaos. And America is discovering that without belief in the absolute sovereignty of God, one cannot even believe in basic math. Now, the antidote to such calamity is revival. And only through the gospel of Christ Jesus can we find such a greatly needed restoration. 
Now the formula for restoration is as singular as it ever has been across the annals of history. And I want us to now go to the Old Testament, where we're not going to Nehemiah 10 just yet. I want us to go to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, and we will find this truth in this formula illustrated. Samuel, he declared to the assembly of Israel, he said, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtrates from among you. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, Samuel's message here was not just something that Samuel concocted. This message was of God, and it is as true today as it was then. If you want restoration, then you must turn away from service to all idols and all alternative moral authorities and return to the liberating service of God. And yet, despite this unfailing communication to prosperity and joy, the people of Israel, they couldn't peel their hearts away from the love of idolatry. And whether it was to the strange idols stumbled upon while in unfamiliar lands or to the idols fashioned by the hunger of their hearts, the Israelites could not resist. And what we will find that across human history, no matter where the sons of Adam or daughters of Eve are, they cannot resist the temptation of idolatry. You know, when you look at the order of the Ten Commandments, they are really put together in a very particular organization for a reason. There's structure to it, and there's methodology behind it, and it's quite logical. It's fascinating that so many of the teachings of God, they are both logical observations and great instructions on how we are to live. Idolatry really is something which shapes the entire trajectory of our lives. Whatever is the moral authority in our life is going to motivate how we exist. Because our motivations, they have so much to do with how we interact with the world. You know, we have our plans, our intentions, the things we would like to do, but yet so many unsuspecting things creep in. What we find when we look to the Old Testament is that idolatry ravaged Israel. And idolatry does what it always does. It makes crude beasts and fools out of both the learned and laborers alike. Idolatry always makes people behave ignorantly and crudely, like primitive pagans who will kill their own children. This is the way of idolatry. It's like the orchestra that Nebuchadnezzar has. Whenever you hear that sound of the music and its beckoning crescendos, you have to lower your brain a few IQ points and bow down, regardless of what you're doing. It makes a fools out of everyone, whether they love that music or they're just so exhausted they decide to bow to it. It takes a lot of energy, and it takes a lot of effort. One has to be motivated to serve God in order to withstand the wiles of idolatry. The wiles of the deceiver, they are quite powerful, and they come at you relentlessly. And for the people of Israel, they were not exempt from this because this is just basic human behavior. And when we look a little bit further in the first book of Samuel, we find in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 7, just how idolatry reshaped Israelite society. Even though there may have been a time here and there where they wanted to turn back to God, we also find that just a few moments later, they're really to get back down in their idolatry. And in Samuel 8, 4 through 7, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said this. And they said, Give a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now this really is a fascinating thing. 
There's so much built into the Holy Scriptures. We look at this and we see that their argument is rooted in a lot of truth. You see, the sons of Samuel, they had acted wickedly. That old standard for holiness that I find Jethro gives Moses there in Exodus 18 to fear God, be trustworthy, and hate dishonest gain, well, guess what? The sons of Samuel, they kind of broke all three of those standards of holiness. And when the people came to Samuel saying, look, your sons, they do not walk in your ways, that was true. The other nations do have kings that judge them. But that's not how God and this it's just not right. You know, that's, that's not the argument God wanted them to make. That's not the eyes that God wanted the people to have. You know, they, they come along and they say, oh, look, everything is bad. And they correctly point at some faults and they correctly diagnose some other things in the world. But that doesn't mean that's the truth of how God's people should live. The truth of the matter is, as God tells Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me that I should not reign over them. You see, they used the truths of Samuel's son's shortcomings and the truth of how other nations operate to fashion for themselves a different moral authority. They wanted to live by something else. What the people desired in a king was to be ruled by their own desires and to forsake their liberating status as direct subjects of God. And how sad it is when people neglect the precious gifts of God in favor of something miserable. People always think that idolatry will be better, but it is always more miserable. Even more sad is the truth that there will be many who love their misery. They will let their nails grow long so that they might dig into the pits of despair, clawing their way down deep with great roots to keep them from being drawn out. For there will be many who make a home in the pit of despair, and they will not desire to leave. We look to the New Testament in Hebrews 2.3, and it reminds us of the perils of willful idolatry and asking, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And again, as with much of the wisdom of God, this is both a teaching and a logical observation. If one chooses to walk in the darkness, they live with the consequences of the darkness. Just as if, if one chooses to forgive sins, they are forgiven. Once that power of Christ is, is breathed into the disciples and into the church, there is great liberty that can happen with that. If we make the moves to release sins, well then, they're released and healing can happen. But if people choose to retain old sins, well, then they are retained with all of their consequences. Likewise, if one chooses to live indistinct from the world, so shall they live indistinctly, devoid of the fruits of God and lacking in hope and liberty. The hope and liberty of God cannot be counterfeited or manufactured, for it is only found through the covenant. And once people try to chip away with the hope and liberty of the gospel, to pick and choose which parts of it they like, to use sophistry, sometimes to just take one virtue at the cost of others, maybe even outright lying, what we find is whenever you try to modify the hope and liberty of the gospel, what you end up is rejecting it. And that is such a dangerous game to play. And I don't say this because I take joy in the fact that this is happening in our society, but because I want us to walk in the light and move back towards truth. And inasmuch as there arose over Egypt a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, a generation has arisen in America that knows not liberty. As Pharaoh hated Joseph's house in ignorance of the good deeds done for Egypt by the Hebrew, we have many who hate liberty and her family of virtues out of ignorance of their beauty. Rather than desiring the providential liberty that was loved by our forebearers, Many have desired to be ruled by their heart's own desires, just as the ancient Israelites did when they wanted a king. And this is something which is just tragic in our world, because the end of the story is always the same. For outside of God, all is of chaos. 
All of the world is of chaos. That's just how it is. Outside of God is the void, the land of entropy, where everything spirals towards Gehenna, the meaningless hell of eternal torment. And whether by crawl or by sprint, everything outside of God will decay. And in the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, it reminds us that for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eye, the pride and riches, they come not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. Today, when we look around our world, we are clearly surrounded by wholehearted evil. This is the evil that consummates its wretched ways by ignoring all that is good and true. Its tactic of deception is to ignore what is good and true rather than to bother in defying it. Such evil knows it can only maintain its terrible deception through instilled ignorance of all that is true, noble, just, pure, beautiful, good, and virtuous. This particular breed of wickedness knows that truth and light are so powerful that if it were even to acknowledge truth on the floor of debate, then it would be exposed for the fraud that it is. And it cannot afford for our world to even suspect the existence of absolute truth. Therefore, it must ignore the truth to the point of annihilation in order to maintain its terrible siege. And insomuch as there is great assurance in the perfect order of God's creation, we also have assurance that God's perfect judgment will ring into fruition. Just as the laws of mathematics and physics bind together our terrestrial domain, so will the judgment of God restore creation to her noble beauty. And despite the frustrations of our world that wicked deeds go unpunished and deceitful hearts stir without accountability, we know that there will be an hour when Christ judges the living and the dead. But the question for us is, do we love our enemies, our neighbors, enough to wish for them that on that day of judgment they be graced with life rather than to be ended in final calamity? If so, then we must witness to them of the love of Christ even as they are increasingly given over to idolatry and paganism. In the church we are commanded to work so that as many names as possible will be recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, when the angel descends from mid-heaven announcing the hour of judgment. The mortal folly of beast worship, it looms near, and perhaps it is always loomed near, for there is no arresting its blasphemy. There comes a time when even Christ, whose love and dedication is infinitely greater than our own, says it is time to shake the dust from one's sandals. Now, I've always found that to be disturbing, and it is disturbing to know that such a time exists. Therefore, we preach the truth of the gospel, for it does not belong to us, we are mere stewards of it. Let us appreciate the time that we have to do the good work while we can. If we desire to bring people into the faith, then we must draw the line and defend it, standing against evil as a testimony of all that is good and true. It is only through maintaining the holiness of the church that we can offer people a real alternative to the wiles of the world. If we love people, we must show them the true gospel. The idols of today demand we see the world through the lenses of power and oppression. But the God of all creation, he will look into your soul and ask if you loved him. When we look to the gospel according to St. Matthew, and we look there in chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, we find some insight into God's judgment. And what we find there in that passage is there are a few slaves who are given charge of talents by their master. One given five, one two, and one just a single talent. Now what we find with this is that the one who was given the most talents, he went and did something very good with it, doubling his talents. 
And even to the one who was given um, several talents, more, more than one, he wasn't given the least amount, but the one who had that middle quantity went and did something meaningful with it as well. But the one who was given just the lone talent went and buried it, telling his master, you are unfair, you reap what is not yours, you harvest where you did not sow. And the master looks at him, and in great judgment, he says, you think that I do these things? You think that I reap what is not mine, harvest where I did not sow? And yet you have decided to go and hide and do nothing meaningful with the talent I gave you? And then, for that unlucky slave, he is sent out to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But what we find when we study that is an insight into God's judgment. Scripture does not indicate that God will judge us based on our circumstances, on how we were treated fairly or not. That's kind of how our modern world wants to run justice, you know, looking at someone's circumstances rather than what was actually going on in their heart. God, when he looks at us, God is not going to look at us and ask whether or not we were treated fairly, but instead on how we loved him and followed his commandments. The parable of the talents is not a parable of how each slave was treated, but how each slave treated the gift of their master. And it is here, I want us to go now and read Nehemiah chapter 10. In Nehemiah chapter 10, it opens up and it says, Upon the sealed document are the names of Nehemiah the governor. And then it has a whole list of other people. Now, at the end of chapter 9, Nehemiah, he took and he wanted the names of the officials, nobles. He wanted some Levites, the priest. He wanted those who had some echelon of authority there in society, that those who were really in that unique group of, of position where they had authority. He wanted their names to be recorded on a document saying, we're drawing the line. Here is the authority of the people of God. And it doesn't belong just to a few priests, Levites, or even a governor, but it belongs to God. And we are signing our names not to something we conjured up or we feel like we like, but we are signing our names next to something which has been revealed from God to us. Something bigger than ourselves. Something which we don't get to pick and choose which we like. We're signing our names here as an oath. And when you go to Nehemiah chapter 10, and we're going to pick up in verse 28 today, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to adhere to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, they join there with their kin, their nobles, and they enter into a curse. Now, this is a strong language. They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all of the commandments of God um, to the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. And they said, We will not give our daughters to the people of the lands or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in merchandise or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. For we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. And we also lay on ourselves the obligation to charge ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the rolls of bread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed festivals, the sacred donations, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We have cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God by the ancestral houses at appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. 
We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our soil and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. And you also bring to the house of our God, the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborns of our sons, of our livestock, and as it is written in the law, the firstlings of our horde, of our herds, and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine of every oil, through the priests to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring the Levites the tithes from our soil, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our rural towns. And to the priests, the descendants of Aaron, they shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and their sons of Levite shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the storerooms where the vessels of the sanctuary are. And where the priests that minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers are, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, when we look at this chapter, we find that every aspect of their life is affected. Furthermore, they're putting in great work to maintain the temple of God. They're putting in great work to maintain the covenant of God and their allegiance to it. And this truly is a, a beautiful thing. And what we find here in this chapter, and again, looking back to last week's lesson, a lot of people would read this and say, oh, well, they're distinguishing themselves with foreigners. They would read that through modern eyes, and they would say, oh, well, they just hate foreigners, and it's that sort of thing. No, they are making a clear line that says you cannot enter into the kingdom of God without going through the covenant. We quite clearly see that they are commanded to have love for the strangers, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, those who are the poor, and even to welcome those into their kingdom so long as they enter through the covenant. You find people like Ruth. You find a lot of people throughout the history of the people of God who enter into the, the kingdom of God, but they have to come through the covenant. And that was the big problem, you see. The people of God had forgotten their relationship to the covenant, and therefore they had fallen into decay and despair. And Nehemiah is drawing the line. He says, we are going to maintain the covenant. We are signing ourselves in curse and oath, saying we will follow this covenant. And if anyone wants to enter this kingdom, they have to come through that way. Now, Nehemiah 10, it really is more a solidification of everything thus far in the memoir than it is anything new. Revival and restoration must come through the covenant if it is to be achieved and maintained. If one wants to be a part of this unique society, which is set apart for God's purpose, then they must enter into it through the front doors of the covenant. If one wants to live in liberty without shame, then they must bind their name with the unchanging covenant of God. It's not through debate, compromise, or negotiation with the disloyal skeptics that hate God and his virtues, but only through the firm foundation of the covenant. Restoration of a nation and liberty from idolatry can only be found through the covenant. And we are graced to live under the new covenant of Christ. And it is a lion. It is a lion that can slay the vilest darkness and a lamb that can bring peace to all. We are graced by this new covenant, which is bound by the blood of Jesus. Now, this did not abolish the old, but fulfilled it. And revival begins between your heart and God. And we must be so moved by the gospel of our Lord to rise up as righteous men and women who defend all that is good, true, and beautiful. We must love our neighbors and enemies enough to tell them truth they do not want to hear. For there is no lasting meaning in idolatry and paganism. And so many have been consumed by such a hollow existence. Now our nation today has been demoralized, but the gospel can restore it. Do not be deceived by the popular thinking of today. Revival does not begin with top-down policies, with the right personalities, but instead it begins with men and women who rise up in honor of their God. 
Living in contrast to the world does not mean that the devil sits on the throne of heaven, or that service to our enemies means that we are motivated by their approval. But instead, we are motivated by the service of God. People are not brought into the kingdom by compromising with them, but by showing them the aspirational beauty of the gospel. We must unleash the full power of the gospel which radiates with freedom. In this kingdom, we can aspire towards common good because we put our faith in the one who is eternally sovereign, the one who is the truth and the life. If we want to show people an alternative, then we must hold the line on what makes it an alternative. A pathway for all has been made to the kingdom of God, but they must come in through the covenant and be born again through Christ. Are we prepared to love people, even our enemies, enough to draw the line against evil and witness to the world as defenders of light and truth? And that's where we're going to wrap up our message today. Let us close by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for joining us. God love you, and have a blessed day.